Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. Heavenly Father, we come today to bring you praise. As we worship together, move our hearts to follow you more fully in the way that you lead us. Amen. family of God gathered together, I want to invite you to take a moment and share a word of greeting with your brothers and sisters in worship today.
As we gather for worship this morning, there are just a couple of things I want to highlight in the, the life of the church. Uh, tonight, our small groups uh, continue meeting, Koinonia, meets in Wesley Chapel at 7. Uh, and Wednesday evening, our ministries are uh, running for children, youth, and a prayer group for uh, adults. And also, just note that for the uh, King's Club, uh, Kids Club, the girls, they're having a swim party at the, uh, at the college gym. So instead of meeting here, uh, the girls on Wednesday night need to meet at the gym. So that's a change from the bulletin. There are a number of prayer concerns in the bulletin, as always, things related to our lives as well as things related around the world. And one of the things around the world that we want to encourage you to pray about is the work that John Aronson is doing uh, this uh, next few days, a week or so, as he's in the Sudan uh, working in a peacemaking mission. And I know that he would appreciate our prayers. It's a difficult circumstance. Uh, a dangerous situation, I suspect. And so we want to pray for God to do uh, something miraculous. It's one of those things, like many places of the world, where only the miraculous work of God is going to change anything. But we believe God does the miraculous. So we're praying for, uh, for that work as well as other places of the world as uh, we see God's people trying to be his presence in difficult places. The book of Judges is the account of Israel's history following the death of Joshua. Following the death of this great leader and the elders who outlived him, Israel began to spiritually deteriorate. Judges recounts a repeated cycle of Israel rejecting God, God allowing them to be oppressed by foreign nations, Israel crying out to God for help, and God raising up a leader whom God empowers to rescue them. Judges 11 is set in the context of Israel being oppressed by the Ammonites. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now, when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. 
and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Jephthah attempts to work out the situation with the Ammonite king, but to no avail. We pick up the story at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter! You have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. This is the word of the Lord. There are numerous people involved in ministries in our church that allow us to serve each other and to serve um, our children, our youth, and uh, the various uh, people who come to this place and who look to this place for encouragement, for nurture, for spiritual direction, and for help. And we appreciate everyone who is involved in some type of ministry allowing God to use us in a way that uh, helps others. And in the process, God works in our hearts as well. And this morning, we want to take a moment to pray for all of our ministry volunteers. So if you are involved in a a ministry in the church in whatever way that may be, if it's maybe on Sunday mornings, it may be Sunday nights, it may be during the week, Uh, Other times, maybe here at the church or maybe in some of the ministries as we move out into other areas. I want to ask you to stand and we want to pray for you. So please stand if you're involved in any of the ministries of the church in service. Yeah, all of you. Lord, we want to thank you for every person who is standing here before us today. We know that you are pleased with each person's willingness to serve you and your church. We pray, Father, that you will give to us a new heart of love and compassion for people. 
and a spirit of openness to you. We pray for grace and strength for everything that comes to us. We pray that you would fill us with the joy and the fruit of serving you as we serve each other. Fill us, Father, with a joy that is contagious, that we might inspire all of us to the ministry of your kingdom, that we might bring about your will and your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Father, that you will take our gifts and our willingness and our preparation and use us in ways that we could never have dreamed possible. Lord, give us hearts that are open to your spirit, that are ready and anxious to serve and to build up the body of Christ to be what you've called us to be and to shine the light of Christ to those who need to see. And we ask all of this through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Please stand for the singing of the doxology as the ushers come forward to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. so thankful for the many ways that you bless us. To count every blessing would take a lifetime. And now we give back to you, and we pray that you would use these gifts for your honor and glory. Amen.
As we hear the call of God in our lives, we also hear him calling us to pour out before him the burdens and the concerns of our hearts and lives. As we pray together, the altar rail is open and love to have you come and to use this as your place of prayer. And if you would like to do so, please join me. Holy Father, we hear your call on our lives to release the the things of our lives that hold us, things that come between us and you, things that prevent us from experiencing you in all of your fullness and blessing and grace. We pray that you will give us the strength To follow you. Lord, as we come to this time of worship today, we have to acknowledge that we are all wrestling with burdens of one kind or another. Anxiety weighs on us. Peace feels elusive. Hope seems out of reach. Sometimes it's busyness or the pressure of expectations. Sometimes... It's the way we treat each other. Sometimes it's the sins that we simply cannot release. Father, today, give us a new mindset about our lives and the struggles and the burdens. And as we lay all of these before you, hear our prayer. Heavenly Father, our world is a a sea of hurting people. Famine, poverty, disease, slavery, abuse, insecurity, war. We pray that you would heal our world and that you would give to us a passion to be channels of peace and truth and compassion and justice. And channels for people to experience the salvation of Christ. We pray for John and his work in Sudan. And we pray that you would bless him. You would protect him. And that you would give him wisdom beyond himself. We ask that you would work miraculously in him and through him. And that you would do this in other nations of the world. Where there is violence And war. And such pain. Father we thank you for hearing our prayers. Help us to pray with confidence. Because we know that you are the almighty God. And with joy because we know you hear our prayers. And 
and with gratitude because you have promised to be with us and to do more than we could dream or imagine. Let our lives be so fully open to you that our natural default is humble obedience and and transparent worship. We pray all of this because of Christ Jesus. And we pray it in his name. As we pray together the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
The New Testament reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Father, let your spirit come upon our hearts that as your people in this place, we would hear you 
And we would be open to you. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I suspect that most of us would not consider ourselves superstitious. But we live in a world where many people are. You know, you think about the things that that people talk about in terms of superstitions, about things that are bad luck or sometimes good luck. You know, black cat running in front of you or uh, stepping on a crack. You know, you probably, that little saying, step on a crack, break your mother's back. And so, you know, we didn't want to do that. Um, Walking under a ladder, which honestly just seems like good sense to me that you don't want to do that in the first place. And, and, you know, and, and we people, I know people who, you know, they have a lucky rabbit's foot or they have a lucky coin in their pocket or, or they have a lucky suit that they wear to their job interviews. And I want to say, how lucky can that suit be if you're still having to have job interviews? But, you know, beside the point. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we, we see people all the time who, who do that and we do it subtly as well as overtly. Probably superstition is most prevalent in the world of sports. I was asked someone this morning about soccer, and they said, I really think soccer players had a lot of superstitious rituals, but a lot of sports do. If you ever watch Rafael Nadal play tennis, one of the top tennis players in the world, when they, at a changeover, when he sits down in his chair, he will put his towel exactly the same way and turn, lean his racket the same way, and when he gets ready to get up, he has two water bottles, and he sets them on the, on the court, on the ground there, just exactly right in front of each other, and the labels are always turned to whichever end of the court he's playing. And I think to myself, this is one of the top players of the world, and something in his mind is saying, if those things are turned this direction, I'll play better. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Baseball probably is as, has as much of that as anything as you see you know, managers walking out to the pitcher's mound and they always step over the white line. Uh, just a, a, You watch a batter getting in to start to hit and they go through all these gyrations and things that they do. And you see these superstitions. And I keep thinking, you would think that an athlete like that would say, it's my skill and it's my preparation that's enough. And yet there's something about these little acts that make them feel a little bit more comfortable with what they're doing. The chance for more, being more successful. Now we kind of understand that because even as spectators, we might do things. This week, one of the pitchers for the Cincinnati Reds threw a no-hitter. And it reminded me back to 1978. We went to a Reds game, we were playing the Cardinals, and we saw Tom Seaver pitch a no-hitter. That was pretty awesome. And... What ended up, what I remember about that is that as it got to about the fourth or fifth inning and there were no hits, you began to think, hmm, maybe he might do this. And, and get, I began to get real nervous as a fan watching this game. And, and I remember back, and it's so stupid just thinking about it now, but I remember sitting in my seat and my, and my, I was getting sweaty, probably because of the heat, but also because I was getting nervous. And, and I, was, I would take my thumb and I would rub it through my fingers like this after every pitch. Every pitch, do this. And it worked. He pitched a no-hitter. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It's even more ludicrous to think that me sitting up in the 120th row of this massive stadium 
would have any effect on what was going on on the field by what I was doing with my hands. But there's something in us that wants to believe that somehow we can control things that feel uncontrollable to us. And we're looking for every way that we can find to control what feels out of control. And I think there's something of that in the the story of Jephthah that we read in Judges 11. Jephthah is raised in a family where he's an illegitimate child. His mother is a prostitute. And and his father has a wife and they have other children. And when he gets of age, they kick him out of the house because he's not going to get their inheritance. And he goes to the northern part of Israel... And he, he gathers around him a, a group of pretty, pretty out there guys. And, and they become, they become a, a gang. And he gets a, gets a reputation for being a pretty amazing warrior. And the Ammonite have, Ammonites are, are persecuting Israel. They have oppressed them. And again, because of Israel's sin and God's allowed this to happen. in that cycle that goes through the book of Judges. And... And finally they say enough and they cry out to God and and they says, all right, I'll help you. And they hear of of Jephthah and they say, would you help us? Now that story gets really contemporary, doesn't it? You know, you get kicked out of a group and then they come back to you a little bit later and say, you know what? Sorry, could you come back and help us in the group? And our natural reaction is to say, forget it. Well, Jephthah, is a, he's, he's the guy who makes bargains and deals. So he says, well, I'll do it, but what are you going to give me? I want to be the leader of this whole area here. Will you let me do that? If I, if I rescue you, if I come back, will you, will you give it to me? And they say, sure. So Jephthah prepares his men for battle. And just as they're about to start the battle, the scripture says that the spirit of the Lord comes upon him. I have no idea what that feels like, what that means exactly. But it must be pretty awesome for the spirit of God to come upon you in such a way that the writer of the story tells us. And it must be some sense of confidence, some sense of awareness of the presence of God in a person's life that you didn't have before that. Something that says, look, I am with you. We've got this. But for Jephthah, it's not quite enough. It it still feels a little bit out of control. And so he says, God, I, I appreciate your spirit. This is good. But... How about we make a deal? If you give me victory, whatever comes out of my house first, I'll sacrifice to you. Burnt offering. And Jephthah goes into battle. He wins. Awesome celebration. He comes home, turns into his driveway. Who comes out of his house? His daughter. And the celebration turns to mourning and grief and pain. And ultimately, he does what he has vowed to do. It seems to me from thousands of years later, and even knowing that God says to to the people of Israel that if you make a vow, you better keep it. 
So be careful about the vows you make. God is serious about vows. Nevertheless, it seems to me, and granted we're looking at it from a long time later, that this is a case where Jephthah might well have said, maybe I won't keep this vow. Now, I don't know who he expected to come out of his house. I don't know if he normally was greeted by one of the goats when he came home. I, I don't know. I suspect probably a slave. More than likely, maybe, maybe one of the slaves. And that's still abhorrent to us. But in that culture, slaves really weren't viewed as human beings in the way that we would view people. They were tools. Property. But here comes his daughter. And in that moment, you would expect him to say, wait, wait, wait a second. Even if it means, God, that I take the judgment on me, I'm sparing her. But he doesn't. There is something in the human understanding of things and the way we live our lives that, that even though we don't sacrifice family members, there are times when we are so enamored with the goal of our lives, when we're so enamored with what we're doing and what's important to us, that in some respects, we do sacrifice people we love. That we do, we get, we get so enamored with the dreams of our lives and, and the things that we're passionate about that we ignore people who are important to us. And, and we push aside people that we love. And we hurt people who are closest to us in order to get that end that we desperately want. And it's not just about family. It's about people we work with. People who, who live near us. Relationships that we have. Our closest friends. We are so enamored with doing good and doing what's right and, and, and accomplishing what is just and we, we become so focused on that, we don't realize the carnage that's left behind us in getting to that goal. And we hurt people with our words. We hurt people with our actions, our attitudes. And in order to get to the goal that we believe is right and just and good, we push people away. And we hurt them. I think if we turn that around, we understand it. Because we live in a world where we're hurt. We live in a world where, where people hurt us. Maybe you grew up in a family. Again, as we've been talking the last few weeks, just like the, the church, none of our families are perfect. No churches are perfect. We hurt each other. And, and we, leave, we leave a path of, of pain often with people that we're closest to. And we know what it's like to be on the other side of the pain and to, and to get that. We understand it. And what's so amazing is that after having been hurt, it's still so easy for us to hurt. And we can get so focused on things that are passionate for us. Things that are good. Things of the kingdom that we want to accomplish and that God wants us to accomplish. 
But we get so focused on the end, we don't realize what we're doing in the process. And I think that's because we've been sold a bill of goods that we have bought. That God is primarily concerned about success. God is primarily concerned about results. God is really focused on the end and accomplishing what we've been called to accomplish. When the reality is, while God is certainly concerned about results, he is even more concerned about the journey and the process of getting to those results. If we, if we bring dozens of people into a relationship with Christ, but we hurt people and we reject people and, 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 we're, and we're cross with people and we leave this wake of carnage of people behind us, what have we really gained for the kingdom? What message are we sending to the rest of the world? That the strategy of the world is no different than the strategy of the church. We've bought into that. I think probably the reason we wrestle with that and the reason we do that is because of our insecurities. Our insecurities cause us to want to... to to prove that we have worth and value. We want people to see that. And, and in our culture, the most profound way in which people value us and make us feel worth is success. Getting results. That's what we honor. That, that's, that's, that's where we put our accolades. That's often how we value one another. What have you gotten done? What have you accomplished? In the church, it's often about numbers. How many people do you have? How much offerings? How many offerings have you taken in? How many people? And those are not bad things at all. But those become how we measure our value and worth, not just as individuals, but as a congregation. And when that's our, where that's a place where we get value, then we do whatever we have to do to get to that end. And you see that in Jephthah. Uh, You know, he's been kicked out of his house. He's been rejected by his family. That hurts. That's painful. And when he comes back, his whole point is, I want to make sure everyone knows I have power. I'm in control. If I, I'm not just going to do this because I'm a nice guy. I'm going to do this because you and I have made a deal. We have a bargain, and you're going to stick to it. And when this is done, and when the dust clears, everyone's going to say, boy, we made a big mistake kicking him out. And that insecurity in him, the hurt and the pain, drives him just like it does us. And that drive for value and worth leads us to live our lives trying to control life and often trying to control God. And has a direct bearing on how we relate to God and, and how we pray to God. So we find ourselves in situations where we pray prayers like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll go to church three out of four Sundays if you get me out of this. Let's not get carried away here, right? 
God, if you make this relationship happen, I'll, I'll become a missionary. God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And of course, the most ludicrous part of that argument is that we would have anything God would need. We're like, the, we're, we're like me sitting up in the stands, rubbing my fingers, thinking that has a bearing on the game. To think that, you know, our, our arrogance, that we actually could bargain with God and we could offer him something other than ourselves that God might need. It's an overtly pagan mindset. It's the mindset of the nations that live around Israel. You, you read the stories of those nations and their gods. All of their gods are capricious and, and manipulative. And, and they don't like human beings. And they try to avoid doing anything good for human beings. Because they don't want to. And it goes back to the creation stories. When you read the creation stories of the, of the other nations of the world. They seem to fall in the categories of human beings come into existence. Either by accident. We didn't mean to do that. But hey, they, they got created. Or as a form of punishment against other gods. Or a tool to use against other gods. No wonder there is a mindset that the gods don't want to do good to us. But you compare that to our creation story and we discover that God creates human beings because he wants to. Because he wants relationship with us. Because human beings are important to God. Because God is loving and good. And when the foundation of our existence is that God creates us because he wants us. It completely changes our relationship of how we connect with God. Somewhere deep inside our being, we have this pagan mindset of God. Because of our hurts and our disappointments and the struggles of life, we have this pagan mindset of God that we're not quite sure he's as good and as trustworthy as he says he is. And so we have to bargain with God. Jesus understands that human struggle. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his disciples, ask, seek. And if you human beings who are so messed up know know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your loving Father in heaven who created you wants to give good gifts to his children. At the heart of our issues of control and bargaining is a skewed view of who God is and of how God feels about us. So many people have disappointed us. So many people have rejected us and hurt us that we treat God the same way we treat each other. With skepticism and uncertainty and with making deals and bargains. And all the while God is saying, you don't have to do that. I love you. I love giving good gifts to you. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples, you don't, you're not getting things, you're not asking. 
God wants to pour out blessings on you. Just ask. Come. God is always doing good, more good than you could ever dream or imagine, even when you don't ask. God's doing good. And here's Jephthah, who is so focused on on his own insecurities, so focused on on accomplishing this task and and being seen as, as important among people that I don't think he even realizes what he's doing to his daughter and his family. And what's so ironic is that he wins this battle and he becomes the head of Gilead, but he has no descendants. No one follows him. Nothing else is going to carry on because of this rash vow that he makes. And everything gets turned upside down. I suspect you probably have read or seen, heard something about the, uh, the debacle this week in the, in, the, in the replacement referees of the National Football League. I was watching the game Monday night, and as a Packers fan, boy, that was irritating. And they lost the game because of these replacement referees' decisions. And as, as frustrating as that was, what it really intrigued me was that on Tuesday, there was this whole mass of articles, and I don't mean just on ESPN, but on, on other just normal, regular news sites. There were articles about these replacement referees and what was going on with them, and, and, and an article on, on Wednesday, and articles on Thursday, and it just sort of just kind of exploded. And you know, everything written was about the replacement referees and how they, they cost the Packers the game and, and how they cost a lot of people who play fantasy football winning that week and points. And, and they cost the people who gamble on, on uh, football tons of money. And all of a sudden it hit me, nobody's writing an article about the game. There's no, nobody's writing an article that says, here's how the players played, here's how the coaches coached, here were the great things that happened in the game, who scored the touchdowns, who did what. Every article just about was replacement referees. And when you read the story of Jephthah, what should have been a headline of God uses Jephthah to bring about freedom for Israel, instead, the thing that comes to our mind when we read the story is, Jephthah makes a crazy, rash vow that costs his daughter her life. And our main goal and purpose and the passion of our lives is control and bargaining because we can't see who God is. Then the focus of our prayers... And the focus of of our relationships are all about us instead of about God and what he's doing. And about who he is as the gracious, merciful, loving one. It intrigues me that Jephthah is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews is, is providing this litany of, of people who have great faith. And he gets to verse 32 and he says, what can I say? I don't have time to talk about people like Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. 
and David and Samuel and the prophets who did great things for God. And I read that and I'm surprised and honestly I'm a little bit irritated. Why? Of all the people he could have picked, why Jephthah? Come on. And I don't know exactly, but something in the back of my mind says it's reminding us, first of all, that people are a lot more complex than we often realize. And life is complex. But the main thing that comes to my mind is that Jephthah is a story of God's grace in spite of. We wish the story wouldn't have ended as it did. We wish Jephthah would have made some different decisions. We wish that, that he wouldn't have, have chosen to, to move the path in the path that he chooses. But even though he does, God is gracious and merciful. And I have to tell you, it's awfully good to hear that and to see that. Because I make bad decisions. And I hurt people. And I bargain with God sometimes. And I want to control things. How awesome to know that even still, in spite of, God is good. And God is gracious. And God is merciful. Because you do the same thing. And we're reminded that we worship a God who is about grace in spite of. I think God is, is putting before us the question, are we going to live our lives trying to control, trying to bargain, trying to, trying to manage? Or are we going to live our lives with our hands off Letting God lead us in whatever direction he wants to lead us. Taking us in whatever direction he wants to take us. As individuals and as a body of believers. Because we are convinced that the God we worship and the God who's leading us and the God who's calling us is good. And he can be trusted. Heavenly Father, Give us that truth. Give us that mindset. Give us that heart to believe that you are good and merciful and trustworthy. Even in spite of. Make us people as we work for you, as we're passionate about your calling in our lives and in this world, that we follow it with our hands off because we trust you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. And to join with me in the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin.
and remain standing for the hymn that follows. Let's pray together. O God, your being is love, and all your works toward us are mercy. Forgive us when we stray from our confession of faith into thinking that you are like the gods of this world who demand destructive sacrifices in exchange for their favor. Cleanse us from the injustice that goes hand in hand with idolatry. Illumine our minds with knowledge of God by your Spirit, whoever points to Christ, that we may return to you in true repentance, acknowledging you as the source, the giver, whose attitude toward us is one abounding in unfailing generosity and steadfast love. In the name of Jesus Christ, who trusted you through death to new life, Amen. Our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In great mercy and according to his promise, God will cleanse us from our sin and restore us in Christ's image to the praise and glory of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.